welcome to episode 56 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, is Colin Smollin. Hey, Collins. What's up, Chris? How's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good. I am back from GP Brussels. I had a lot of fun this weekend. Awesome, awesome. Didn't do quite as much winning as I had hoped to do. I I played black red and had basically just the the stereotypical black red record, which is make day two and then like you know end up with exactly fifty percent win rate on the weekend, not counting buys. So True. not not the greatest results. But we'll we'll talk about you know what specifically I did and and what I kind of learned when we're talking about standard today. Well, cool. Yeah. What? Yeah, Black Red's definitely one of those, um, you know, kind of like middling, uh, always going to be good, but you're not going to XO the tournament kind of deal. Yeah, decks. yeah. You're certainly not breaking it if you're putting Scrap You Scrounger and, and <laughs> Heart of right, Kieran right. and stuff in your deck. Yep. That's like, you're, you know, you're kind of shooting for the juicy, like, 11-4, 10-5 at that point, right? <laughs> like... Yeah, I guess so. I mean... <laughs> uh, I... Yeah, and maybe, you know, it makes top eight because a third of the tournament is on the deck, and right. maybe I should have really, you know, been going after something else, but I just, you know, had a, had a hard time finding something that I was happy with going into this weekend. And now mm-hmm. looking back, we can kind of see what I should have, or, or what I should have thought about at least, but yeah, going into it, you know, nothing nothing was feeling good, everything kind of just felt a little underpowered or just like badly positioned against black red and i just kind of went with the boogeyman and it you know didn't really pay off in any particular way sure yeah what did you get up to this weekend this weekend i did a, a pptq in fayetteville north carolina so you know that was kind of fun like kind of been doing some smaller events lately um not traveling as much i had the opportunity to go to orlando this weekend but decided to pass on that because school's starting up for me again and it's just easier to stay a little locally for this particular weekend yeah yeah makes sense i did one round better than last pptq i played in this time i made the quarterfinals (laughs) um (laughs) i i ended up playing affinity for the event which was fun a kind of a fun and new experience and just kind of happened because it was it was something handy that i you know i kind of wanted to try out so you know that was all a lot of fun so regular regular affinity not hardened scales affinity yeah just regular affinity okay cool cool well, you know, two more PTQs then, and you'll you'll have your finals. Right, one, yeah. So. We can lose in finals next time, and, you know. Yep. And <laughs> Perfect. So, it'll be great. <laughs> cool. Uh, before we get started too far, I want to thank our new patrons. If you would like to become a patron and support the show, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Um, we got some rewards up, Discord membership we actually have our samples of our hats that just came in some pretty sweet mtg grindcast uh caps and we're not totally sure what our you know like distribution method for these is going to be so far but patrons are certainly going to get first dibs on these so if you have ever thought you know might be real nice to rock some mtg grindcast swag then you know join up and we'll we'll have more information on how to how to do that pretty soon yeah, the, I've seen these hats, and they're pretty sweet. You'll probably see me wearing one of these hats in Baltimore coming up if you're there. So, so, so be yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. 
Yeah, I assume you're skipping Dallas because you just started school and Dallas is very far away. And yeah, and yeah, that. yeah. Cool. So new patrons this week we have Colonel Excalibur. Thank you for your patronage. Yeah, let's uh, let's get on with some magic content. Let's do it. So. For our Keeper Mall this week, there was a really interesting one from a Kai Bud article on Star City Games. So he was writing about his preparation for Pro Tour Magic 25, or yeah, Pro Tour 25th anniversary, whatever it's called. And he, he was working on Legacy for it. He was a Legacy seat for his team, and so he talked about the decks that he was playing. And the deck that he ended up on was the Colorless Eldrazi deck. And one of the things he was talking about is how the deck has a core of very powerful cards, and then there's a bunch of kind of filler you have to play to make it a full deck, which makes mulliganing really, really important because the gap between your powerful draws and your less powerful draws is really huge. And so he he gave this example of a really interesting hand, which was Eye of Ugin, Eldrazi Temple, and Wasteland, uh, Mattery Shaper, Endless One, uh, Simeon Spirit Guide, and a dismember. So the two, you know, best lands in the deck, a wasteland, a matter reshaper, an endless one, Simeon Spear Guide for an extra mana, and a removal spell. Um, and so before we go into like what his thoughts were, I just I, I'm interested, Collins, in hearing your initial thoughts on this hand, whether it's a keeper or a mulligan and, and why. Yeah, so I you know, mulligan theory is something that I really, really enjoy, and I've kind of been over the course of my time playing magic getting a little more and more specific on my whole thoughts and everything. And I think that this hand really highlights one of the theories that I've come to recently and that I kind of ran across a lot playing Affinity this past weekend. Um, Affinity is another one of those decks that has a lot of filler and a lot of really, really powerful cards, right? So you, you're you going to have some hands that are kind of just filler and... Mm -hmm don't really like have the punch that you're going to need to to win a game right so and some of the hands from affinity are really tempting to keep because they have like a lot of really good mana and you can dump like six permanents out on turn one right and those kind of hands are like pretty tempting but then once you've done that you kind of look again at your board and you've got like a couple one ones out and that's it <laughs> and maybe yes. like a signal fest <laughs> right so the philosophy that I've that I've and I think I've boiled it down to a pretty like digestible kind of like statement. The hands that you keep in Magic need to be able to win games. You know, and what that means is definitely dependent on the deck that you're playing and the format that you're playing it in. So for example, uh, with Affinity, you know, if you can dump all of your cards out and you have a Mox Opal and you're really excited about being able to do all that stuff, if if you doing that isn't able to win a game because you don't have a cranial plating or a etched champion or kind of like whatever, it's not worth keeping. So a lot of people get distracted by like having good mana and then spells in their hand. So, you know, for the affinity example, it's like, yeah, I've got my Mox Opal and my, and my drum and I'm going to have tons of mana on turn one. It's going to be great. Um, and for this example with the with the Eldrazi hand, it's, you know, I have an Ivugan and an Eldrazi temple and a wasteland and an extra Simeon spirit guide you know, this feels like I want to keep it. I have those and spells, right? But if you look again at this Eldrazi hand and you think about it in the context of Legacy, this hand can't win any games. In order to win a game, like on the first turn, like on your first draw step, you're probably going to need to hit something like 
a Chalice of the Void or a, a Thorn of Amethyst or just like one of the cards that that can facilitate this hand winning a game. You know, just wasting your opponent and then like dismembering their threat isn't going to be enough in a legacy format for like an, a, a matter reshaper into like a 4-4 endless one to be able to really get there. It's just not quite doing something powerful enough in order to be able to really like close out and feel comfortable competing in a, in a format like Legacy. Um, so because this hand doesn't feel like it can win any games without you drawing exactly what you need to pretty early on, in my book it's a mulligan. Yeah, and, and that's what Kai said, is that ultimately, even though this one looks, you know, it can cast its spells, it's it's got the two good lands, it's got Eye of Ugin and Eldrazi Temple, but he said that this was a pretty clear mulligan for him. You know, this this hand goes turn one matter reshaper, turn two, four, four, endless one, but yeah, that's just not super powerful. You're not disrupting what your opponent is doing, and your clock is is fine, but it's not, you know, it's that's like a turn four clock with nothing. So, so yeah, I mean, I get that. You know, the, the tough thing here, though, is also that, like, number one, like, you have the lands, which do enable you, like, it turns on most of the deck because you have Ayavugi and Eldrazi Temple. So, you know, you're, you're really close to doing, like, any of the powerful stuff you draw, you're very close to doing it. Um, and if you, you mulligan to a hand that, you know, doesn't have the, the two mana lands, then that can be kind of tough. But, you know, the legacy Eldrazi version has a lot of them because you got Ancient Tombs and a couple of City of Traders, so that's less of a concern. And yeah. uh, also, the like, the thing that you're specifically mulligating to, the actual good starts, I, I guess you just have to be very discerning. And it's got to be, like, Eldrazi Mimic backed up by huge guys for an ultra-fast clock or a turn one Chalice or a turn two Thought Not Seer. And if it's, like, none of those things, then I guess you just can't keep a seven that's that's not doing one of those things, huh? Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think that, like, part of the way that might help people think about it is that you have to trust that your deck is built in a way where your hands are going to be able to, on average, cast your spells. Sure. The sure. Eldrazi deck is full of two mana lands. I think that like it, it plays like way more two mana lands than it does one mana lands, and all <laughs> the one mana lands are like utility, like wastelands or man lands or something like that. So you kind of just have to trust that the six that you're mulliganing into is gonna have a decent number of these two mana lands that's gonna enable you to do explosive things. So don't get caught up in the fact that like you know you're happy that you have enough mana in your seven and keep kind of like whatever cards you might have um you really need to make sure that you are you know you, you need to know that you can trust your deck to be able to produce hands that are going to be able to cast your spells yep uh, yeah that makes sense to me I, I think i think that idea of trusting your deck is, is a, a huge part of it yeah yeah definitely and, you know, like, if I think that the same thing works for Affinity, and because the deck mulligans very similarly to Legacy Eldrazi, and I'm sure there are a lot of other decks that are like this, where the example seven of, like, really explosive but dump six permanents down but not have anything really going on, you, you just need to trust that Affinity draws are going to be able to cast their spells, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, the deck is built that way for a reason, so, you know, if you have a hand that dumps out a lot but doesn't do anything, you, you just got to trust that the deck that you're, the hand that you're mulliganing into is also going to be able to have some element of explosiveness or at least have enough powerful things going on where, you know, it can, it can, it can be explosive. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And and it's it's just like just being able to cast all the stuff you've got in your hand. If that isn't a good enough, if that plan isn't going to win you the game, you can't just let the fear of having an unplayable hand like overcome you. Like you're you're lo- you're certainly lowering your win percentage by that if you're just keeping a hand that is very unlikely to win any given game. Right. Right. And I, you know, I would I would definitely describe this hand in Legacy as very unlikely to win any particular game. So, um, so there you go. Yeah, yeah, and and it's definitely one that, like, I probably without having this conversation and without without reading Kai's analysis of it, I wouldn't really think about it that hard. I'd just be like, all right, turn one guy, turn two guy. I hope I draw something good after that. But you know, with a deck that is doing such powerful things and you know the the gap between its really powerful draws and its very medium draws like this is so big that you want to set your set yourself up to have those really powerful draws. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize that this that kind of mulligan philosophy is pretty specific to decks similar to Eldrazi and Affinity and like you know I think humans as well might be another one. Right. This was not something I was thinking about when making mulligan decisions with Black Red this past weekend. Right. Yeah. Like, in Standard, you're making that kind of mulligan decision is much less prevalent because, you know, Standard and, like, limited formats are full of just kind of, like, they're going to go long and you're going to trade resources, so it doesn't really matter as much what's in your opening hand. And being down a card hurts that much more. Right, and the, right, and the extra cards are, are, are pretty valuable. But yeah, like, in, in a format like, um, like Modern, uh, the format is so fast that you're not really going to have a lot of draw steps. So your yep. opening hand needs to be able to carry its weight. And the same is very true for Legacy as well. So Yeah, I agree. And then we got sort of a, a little follow-up. In our Discord in chat, we were talking about various different uh, KCI packages that let you combo off with the deck. And one that, that caused a little bit of confusion and contention was this package that is lethal just kills your opponent with no other resources. But we were trying to figure out exactly what is the the process for doing that. And we ran into a couple of snags along the way. I just thought it'd be interesting to talk about, you know, what this combo, you know, what this particular set of cards, how to make it deal lethal. And, you know, it, it, it's kind of interesting because this is more important for a KCI player than an opponent of a KCI player. Because if you're the opponent, you're just trying to keep them from having KCI and Scrap Trawler. And so you have to worry a lot less about, you know, which particular sets of cards are actually going to kill me. If they've got a KCI and a Scrap Trawler, they're probably going to find a way. But I think knowing the rules here and, like, what this package does can be really helpful for for seeing how the deck works. Um, So hopefully this won't be too confusing. I actually have had... A headache all day today because I'm a little bit sick after traveling. Oh no! Uh, so, so the headache has made the KCI conversations a little bit difficult to follow. But I think we've got this one, so hopefully I'll be able to explain it in a clear way. So let's say we've got these cards on the board and nothing else. We got, you know, to simplify everything, we've got no library, we've got no untapped lands. All we have are a Cart Clan Ironworks, a Scrap Trawler, a Mirror Retriever, a Pyrite Spellbomb, and a Mox Opal. So this set of five cards can just deal infinite damage to your opponent. And so how do you do that? 
Well, this is one of the combos that requires knowing the, the quote-unquote trick of overpaying for costs. So what we do here is we've got the Pyrate Spellbomb in play. So we tap our Wax Opal for a red mana, and then we sacrifice Crook Clan Ironworks, Mirror Retriever, and Mox Opal to pay for the cost of the Pyrite Spellbomb. And the Scrap Trawler sees all of those go to the graveyard at the same time, and the Mirror Retriever uh, trigger happens at the same time. So, you know, you sacrifice them all for the six mana, you have the red mana to pay for the Pyrite Spellbomb, you sacrifice the Pyrite Spellbomb, and what you end up with is a bunch of Scrap Trawler triggers and you, the Mirror Retriever returns to Krark Clan Ironworks, and then the rest of the artifacts each return the next smaller artifact to your hand. And then you play your, your Mox Opal, tap it for a mana, or you cast your, your Mirror Retriever and your Krark Clan Ironworks, then you cast your Pyrite Spellbomb and sacrifice all three of your artifacts again, the same three artifacts you sacrificed last time, for all of the mana uh, even though you're only paying one mana to cast the Pyrite Spellbomb, you end up with seven in your pool. And that ends up being an infinite loop where you have sort of two loops, the cast the Pyrite Spellbomb loop and the sacrifice the Spellbomb loop. Put them together and you are dealing infinite damage. Um, some of the awkward things that we ran into while trying to figure out what the combo actually was are that uh, you actually can't overpay while casting Mox Opal because since there is you're not paying mana for its cost, you don't have an opportunity to pay mana costs. So you can't use the casting Mox Opal as part of your step to, to overpay and get multiple triggers at the same time. Also, if you sacrifice Scrap Trawler for mana while activating the Pyrite Spellbomb, the Scrap Trawler is no longer in play to see the Pyrite Spellbomb sacrifice because you pay all the costs first or uh, you pay all the mana first, and then you pay the other costs. So you've sacrificed the Scrap Trawler, and then you sacrifice the Pyrite Spellbomb. Even though it's happening like at really close to the same time, the Scrap Trawler happens just before the Pyrite Spellbomb. So there's a lot of like little holes that you can dig yourself into here. But I, I think pretty much at the end of the conversation about this, like we mostly came away because everybody was confusing everybody else, and uh, <laughs> uh, like like coming to a conclusion and then realizing they were wrong about something or questioning something they had come up with. And I think the conclusion is basically that this deck is still just a total abomination. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, it's good to know these spots, like what what combinations of cards can do what. Um, and I, I think pretty much here, like, Ironworks plus Scrap Trawler plus Mirror Retriever, like it almost doesn't matter what else is in play. If there's like a zero mana artifact and, and anything else going on, they're probably going to be able to kill you somehow. And here we're actually generating the mana to deal the damage. But, you know, if there's a Chromatic Sphere or a Terrarion or something, then then there's plenty of card drawing going on and they'll figure something out. So, yeah, man. Karkland Ironworks is a, a like terrifying and headache worsening deck for sure. Yeah, and it just kind of is frustrating that you have to explain this process uh, to your opponent at, like, mm -hmm. multiple stages of you going off. It's, like, a different, like, loop that you're doing. Like, there's a loop yeah. to draw card, and there's a loop to generate mana infinitely, and, and then this is the loop that you're trying to get to to kill your opponent with a spell bomb. 
like there's so many different like infinite loops that you the deck has access to and you, you like as the as the ironworks player you kind of have to like not only know them all but be able to explain them all to your opponents kind of like in time and that's just a headache i'm sure uh yeah yikes. and and like imagine like showing up to like one of your first modern tournaments and you brought like like Grim Flare, Abzan with Lingering Souls, or something like that, and you're just excited to play your your like disruptive creature deck, and then your opponent is trying to explain all this to you, and your eyes just glaze over, and you're like, okay, all right, that's fine, like, yeah, it's uh, I don't know, man, this might just be a problem for reasons other than power level. I not totally sure. I don't have a hard position on that yet, but there, there's definitely cause for concern with this deck overall. Yeah, one of the things that I'm sh- that you know R and D really strives for, and I think that just part of like the philosophy for for Magic is moving forward is we want Magic to be accessible and kind of easy to digest for a lot of new players, and mm-hmm. this is it feels like just kind of purely the opposite of that, where it's. <laughs> It's it's hard to digest for even the most veteran players, right? <laughs> like yeah. people could look like people who've been playing Magic for fifteen years could look at these five cards and have no idea how how it you know all works together to to kill somebody right through an infinite loop. Um, and the fact that that's the case is 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 sad. Yep. In in chat when we were talking about this, everybody participating it are people that I know are competent Magic players and have like have either played with or against this deck multiple times and it was still difficult to to figure it out and we had to get outside help on this to make sure that we were doing it right so it's uh yep yep Uh, echo your concerns shall we move on and talk about some standard yeah we you were just at a a standard gp last weekend so i'm I'm sure we've got some things to say there yeah yeah so i went to gp brussels i played red black I played a version where I cut the Bomac Couriers and was playing a couple more Soulscar Mages and a couple more Magma Sprays in an attempt to be a little stronger against creature decks and get an edge on the mirror. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't really work out for me, and not because I didn't play against creature decks. Uh, I actually played against the mirror for half half of my matches, but... The, like like I played against the mirror for almost half of my matches and I played against mono green a couple of times uh, but uh, in the mirror the the not having bomat couriers never quite paid off uh, my opponents either just never drew their bomat couriers and then took them out or um, you know like I was stumbling on mana I actually lost every single game one against the mirror even though I had intentionally tried to set myself up to be better in game ones. And I'm not sure if that's just because even like going as far as you can and, and kind of sacrificing your game ones against control decks in order to try to get an edge in the mirror, I might just not have been buying very many percentage points in the mirror. And it just never quite paid off because it, it wasn't like a powerful enough change. It wasn't a big enough difference just having a couple of Magma Sprays and a couple of Soulscar Mages over Bomac Couriers. Or, you know, it might have just been variants and over enough matches I would have felt it a little more. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is hard to find an edge in these matchups, in, in these mirrors. And it, it might just be a, a losing game to try to find it. So that was kind of my personal conclusion from this weekend. Yeah, I mean, you know, when Standard does this a lot, 
recently. Um, and when Standard kind of like boils down into a couple really big decks, and one of those decks is like clearly the most popular, the Mirrors is often the most important but most difficult thing to crack. And sometimes it's just better to make your deck best against the field and assume that your opponents are also are kind of like, you know, not really trying terribly hard other than just like the generic things that you can be good in the mirrors and just assume that you're going to have to either outplay or outdraw your 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 opponents in the mirror cuz cuz I think that it's easy to fall into like a a little bit of a too fancy syndrome when it comes to that stuff and I I am very guilty of doing that all the time kind of a running joke for a while was that I really always liked playing the best deck and then whatever like the that deck is named after I like boarding that card out post board in all the mirrors <laughs> like for example in in old Bant collecting company mirrors post board I had no collecting companies in my deck and in old uh, Aetherworks Marvel mirrors I had no Aetherworks Marvels left in my deck post board in the mirrors <laughs> So I definitely, you know, I, I can get a little too fancy with uh, trying to, you know, sideboard in such a way that, that that makes my mirror win percentage better. But I think that, you know, after my experience doing that, I think that I was I was definitely way right to do it in the Collected Company era and, and pretty wrong to do it in the Aetherworks Marvel. But, you know, so it's it just kind of goes to show how hard it is to get that right. And I think that there might be something there in terms of, like, tuning your deck in such a way that's really, really geared towards the mirror today. And I don't really know what the answers are, but I do know that you know finding the right sweet spot for that is is definitely tough. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a general, like, usually correct answer for that or anything like that. You gotta... And that's the, the big challenge of it, is you gotta figure out what's right for this format that you find yourself in. Right, right. And it is always very, very contextual to what everything looks like, because it's different every time, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely crazy. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I don't hate, you know, like, like I, I have tested this build like with, with no chain whirlers and it definitely, or with no, with no bone mech carriers and it definitely feels better in the chain whirler mirrors and it definitely feels better against mono green. And those were two of the most played decks. I mean, uh, red black was 33% of day two at Brussels, uh, Mono Green Stompy was the third most played deck with about 10% of the field. And now now Turbo Fog, and I've got to eat a little bit of crow on this one. Turbo Fog was actually the second most represented deck in day two at Brussels with a solid 14.2% of the field. So at least right now, this is a pretty real deck that you got to be ready for. Yeah, I mean, Turbo Fog showed up uh, this weekend, both I think both in Orlando and in Brussels. Um, yeah, you know, people definitely were out to hate it out, but it, you know, it put a copy into top eight and um, was a, a good chunk of the top twenty five as well. Yep. What's What's really interesting here to me is, uh, like, we have these day two percentages from GP Brussels, and they kind of don't reflect very well. Certainly not on the top eight, but also just not very well like on the the top 20 the top 30 or so decks like the actual winning decks on day two the like you know red black was able to convert to day two pretty well uh mono green stompy was able to convert to day two pretty well and turbo Vog was able to convert to day two pretty well but all three of those decks kind of uh suffered once they got to day two and i think they they must have found kind of a scarier metagame than was present for them on day one i think that for for standard in particular, 
um, day ones are always pretty good for your level one decks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the decks that we, we see everywhere, you know, these are kind of like generically the the decks that are n- like known quantities and known to be kind of the most powerful archetypes. Th- those decks are, are pretty consistently always going to rise to the top on, on day ones. But day two, once the metagame becomes a little more refined to contain more of these known quantity decks, then the level two decks are going to, from there, start to really shine. And those are the decks that people have built that like aren't really you know, as known or as planned for, um, but have a generally pretty good plan against these level one decks that are doing well on day one. So day yeah. twos, it doesn't really surprise me that day two... The decks that ended up making top eight and top like twenty five, for example, were the decks that were a little more tuned to uh, beat these decks that we're expecting to see. Yep, and the the ones that really stand out to me as being those level two decks are mono red aggro, as opposed to red black and esper control as well. So yep. mono red aggro, I, I just want to talk about for a second before we get into esper control. Mono red aggro is kind of a weird occupies a strange middle ground between like the wizards lightning decks and the the black red decks uh it's it's like mythic rare slots are usually like four hazards and two to three rekindling phoenixes it rather than running all removal in its spell slots uh has uh burn that can go to the face so some shocks and some lightning strikes in addition to some abrades and it's very very good at beating the black red decks because it's just a little too fast it is not particularly vulnerable to Chain Whirler, and having access to the four Hazarets and them actually being good in the matchup, uh, or it, it, it's actually, you know, the Hazarets out of Black Red are like kind of medium. Sometimes they're okay, sometimes it's hard to capitalize on them. The Hazarets out of Mono Red are much quicker and, and much easier to get going. So that the, the Mono Red aggro is kind of great against Black Red and kind of loses to most other stuff. Maybe less, maybe not as much to Turbo Fog because it has enough face burn to finish the game off, but it's definitely worse in my experience against the control decks because it's not faster enough to make up for not having duresses in the sideboard, and it's less good against the creature decks in general because uh, it doesn't have things like main deck Chandra's or, or Glory Bringers and is sort of less built to. You know, it can't unlicense Disintegration of Galta, so it's got, you know, some pretty big weaknesses there. But if you're just going to play against a lot of Black Red and I suppose a bunch of Turbo Fog, uh, then then Mono Red Aggro is a, a solid choice. Yeah, I like it. And I've also heard a little, some rumors of a, um, a, a, a kind of like a more low-to-the-ground 18-mountain boss lie version as well. Ah, we yeah, so even more extreme than the than the Wizards Lightning decks, I guess. Like, yeah, oh yeah, Just yeah, going yeah. all out. Yeah, that, I've, I've heard some rumors that people are trying that out with like some main deck insult injuries and stuff like that, and it, <laughs> it looks pretty, pretty interesting. Um, okay. So, uh... You know that we might be seeing some more of that it moving forward. And my hesitation in general with the the Wizards Lightning decks has been that they kind of open themselves up. They like they they weirdly kind of go too small to actually beat Red Black. Like you get small enough that you've looped around and made <laughs> Chain Whirler like actually crush you in yeah, a way yeah. that it it doesn't crush 
the the regular, the more medium mono red decks. And so I I've always felt that my Wizards Lightning matchup as red black was was fine. But maybe if you can go even lower to the ground and have access to you know lots of face burn and and uh, insult to injury plus. I guess like flame of Keld and burn spells or something, whatever it's like end game is there, then it might just be able to, to like 10 you or something in a way that, that you're not ready for as, as black red. I'm talking about daring buccaneers and rigging runners. So like, you know, if that gives you an idea of what we're doing, (laughs) um, that's, that's pretty exciting. That is sweet. I, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested in trying that for sure. And I'm sure very, very favored against turbo fog. Yeah, yeah. Just super blitzy, and then, you know, having access to the uh, insults. Yeah, main deck strong. insult. Jeez. But we should definitely also talk about Esper Control. And yeah. this is one that, you know, it, it popped up. It was the more heavily played control deck at the Pro Tour, but I think there were still only, like, seven people running it. And, you know, these are basically blue-black control decks that are splashing for Teferi and like a Forsake the Worldly and maybe a sideboard card or two. But they're effectively blue-black decks that just happen to also have Teferi in them. And they had a really good weekend this weekend. I know, and, and, and they're, they're another example of like that level two deck where it was like 8% of the day two field at Brussels, but then I th- there were three in the top eight, which is, you know, a pretty, pretty solid conversion rate. I, I think a big part of that is just it's, so this is a weird deck to me. Its matchups, a lot of them are quite good. Just being a Vraska's Contempt, like, four Gear Hulk deck is really tough for Black Red to beat because you just outvalue them and, and you don't allow yourself to get low enough that they can try, even try to be aggressive, which they're not even that great at. And uh, its its Control Mirror matchup is really, really good. Like, the having access to Chromium and Duresses. Like, this is one of the reasons I tried Blue-White before this weekend because I thought it might be reasonably positioned and I just kept running into Esper and there was nothing I could do. I, I, I just, the matchup felt completely unwinnable. I was just getting circles run around me and it was it was really frustrating. So I, I put down blue-white, but I kind of made a mistake and I didn't try Esper control myself. And I think one of the reasons that I didn't is because I, I tried it before, you know, a, a month or two ago and was so frustrated at the mana base that I couldn't couldn't keep going with it. Uh, just like lands coming into play tapped all the time or kind of getting flooded because you're running 27 or 28 lands. And I, I, I don't have a great explanation for, and maybe I just like hit the wrong end of variance when I was running the deck before, but man, the mana in this deck, just the number of lands that come into play tapped and trying the the cost of the deck, you know, four Glimmer of Genius, three or four Teferis, four Torrential Gear Hulks, four Vraska's Contempts. Like you need untapped lands on like turn four, five, and six, and that just never worked out for me. But I assume that it worked out fine for these players. Yeah, and you know, I think that there's just like a lot of stuff that you need to learn how to do in order to like sequence around that happening Mm -hmm. that it's probably hard to kind of like get right the first time so i can see how it might be easy to get frustrated when you're you know getting punished for that kind of stuff uh when you're you know when you're initially trying out the deck to see if you like it or not yeah yeah i mean that's very possible it 
you know, if we just look at it from, like, matchup-based stuff, it is clearly favored against stuff like blue-white control. Just, it has duresses, it has chromium, which is just really, really big game. Uh, It's favored against red-black and against, you know, turbo fog. I think having the duresses in there, like, makes you more more easily able to battle than just a, just relying on counter magic you know stripping that to fairy early on and then holding up counter magic for what they try to do to you but you've reduced their options in a pretty powerful way um uh it, like as long as the deck is working it seems to have better tools right now for the stuff that people are playing at the moment yeah it seems to you know definitely be one of the one of the better position things to be doing right now it's kind of like bigger weaknesses are the green decks, which is probably a good thing for it that like this is its primary weakness is like like Steely Stompy because Steely Stompy did not really perform this weekend. You know, it made up 10% of the day two, but it was one of those, you know, level one decks that really kind of underperformed. I think we only got like one in the top 32 when all was all was said and done at Brussels. So you know, having that be a weakness of your deck, I think maybe that's totally fine. Maybe that's where you want to be. And we saw some really interesting tech choices out of some of these lists to uh, battle the Hexproof, battle the Vine Mares and Carnage Tyrants and that sort of thing. Um, right, right. Jeremy Dizani had Vizier of Many Faces, which is a, a great sideboard card that I definitely have, have found to be very good against the Hexproof guys, like, classically was used to battle Carnage Tyrant, and it's just as good against Vinemare. He also had a Detection Tower in his sideboard, which I was not at all about, but the more I think about it, the more I think that it's actually good and maybe even necessary going forward. If it were just for, like, the Mono Green Hexproof creature matchup, I would not be about it. But uh, one of my friends pointed out that... uh, it's also really good, number one, to have a 28th land in the control mirrors because you want to make every single land drop for the entire game. And number two, gives you an out to their chromium that makes it much easier to to battle it. And I think that with all of those uses combined, you know, I don't want to be the Esper list that doesn't have detection tower when my opponent does because then my chromium is not at all reliable and their chromium is is quite reliable and that's not where i want to be so this is really interesting tech that may just be the right thing to do going forward uh as weird as it seems i mean i i like it i think that it's um you know it fulfills a lot of like interesting and niche roles in the as a sideboard slot that that definitely makes it appealing to me because it's not, you know, it's not just for like one thing or the other. It has utility as like being an extra land and also, you know, answering the problematic threats in your deck. So yeah, it seems, it seems pretty smart, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I can get behind it. Like my first reaction was definitely like not, not good. <laughs> what? Not <interesting>. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But <laughs> we had a couple of kind of surprise decks in the top eight as well. We had just Sultai mid-range and Sultai Gift. Sultai Gift is not like the most surprising because at least it's doing something powerful, something assertive. I think depending on how your control deck is built and certainly depending on how your your red-black is built, uh, you can struggle pretty hard with just an opponent who is capable of playing gate, getting creatures into the graveyard, playing gift and getting a bunch of value out of it. The 
just Sultai mid-range deck that's its plan is just to play medium creatures until it plays Scarab God, though. I don't <laughs> think I can get behind this list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think that he probably had a pretty good idea of, you know, how to play against all of the major archetypes, and he had kind of just, like, your classic Jund, like, all of these answers plus all of these efficient threats kind of deal. And that, you know, every once in a while can get you somewhere. But, you know, not definitely not a deck I, I would recommend, like, testing out as something that's going to, like, break it open or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and he's not even that heavy on answers here. You know, he's got negates after board. Like, he's got two main deck confiscation coups, which... Nice, I, nice. I mean, Probably yeah, stole nice. a lot of games. <laughs> Probably so. did. Probably surprised a lot of people with that game right. one confiscation coup. Um, definitely a weapon that has been effective against Glorybringer in the past, and there's plenty of Glorybringers running around these days, so... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, this, like, two Wild Growth Walker, like, four Jade Light Ranger, four Merfolk Branch Walker package is just not... not really something that I can get behind. And... And, <laughs> and Hostage Taker also... Like, this full playset of Hostage Taker is... In a format where, you know, all the red-black decks, especially after board, are just so heavy on removal against the creature decks that yeah. it's it's tough to imagine this being a place you want to be. Very, very early in the format, I remember seeing a Wild Growth Walker, like, mm, I think it was a Naya build that I thought was interesting. And and I, 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 I might be a little higher on the Wild Growth Walkers than you are, like, gaining... Getting three life and making a big dude can be pretty relevant in some matchups. Yeah, um, I, I've seen it be good, but I kind of, if I'm going to do that, like, do I really just want two Wild Growth Walkers, or do I really want to do this? Sure, right. Um, I think it's probably something that's just kind of, like, fine to have every once in a while. So, like, mm -hmm. the number two, uh, like, the two of is definitely, like, a strange, it gives you a strange feeling in terms of, like, you know, I'm just not going to draw this when I need it, and I might draw it when I don't need it kind of deal. But I think it's fine. Um, you want to you wanna have it every once in a while, whenever you need it. And it's never really that bad. I mean, the card is like generally a fine threat. Sure. So I, was, I, I think I was initially impressed when I played against it first. But who knows? Maybe it's, maybe it's too cute. Yeah. I mean, it, like, I, I've definitely... It, it was a, a, a standout in like early MTG arena play. <laughs> I know you would, you'd play against like Wild Growth Walker into Jade Light Ranger a lot, and that's that is yeah. that is powerful. But uh, I mean, just you know, like as a if I'm playing a reactive deck, whether it's like a, a black red deck with a bunch of removal or a, a true control deck, like this, like Lanwar Elves, Merfolk Branch Walker, Servant of the Conduit, Wild Growth Walker, like like these are just not very threatening cards. Like they're casting a bunch of spells that. Uh, I like they have to cast Scarab God and have it be good to win, I guess. And maybe that's not impossible, but you know, and I guess Scarab God plus Blossoming Defense is pretty sweet. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but this deck mostly, I just does not doesn't speak to me. <laughs> no, I understand. I do. Um, but you know, I think that the deck probably gets a little bit of equity because it's really, really good at taking the game into a place where it can land a Scarab God. You know, the creatures can be pretty good on defense and make the game go longer. Yeah. I kind of see where it's going, but I, I'm, I'm definitely with you in that it, it feels a little strange. Yeah, and, and I mean, that is clearly, like, the goal of the deck, is it's really good at, like, casting a Scarab God early on, maybe even with Blossoming Defense back up. 
Um, and so if, if you've determined that like that is good enough in standard, then maybe it is something to look at. But and and what's really interesting is like I guess we should talk about Turbo Fog a little bit because I you know I was down on it and I was definitely not quite respecting it. And so so hopefully Dubes in uh, in our Discord will will have some mercy on me after I. You know, <laughs> Uh, take back some of the things that I said about Turbo Fog. The deck is fine. It has some pretty huge weaknesses. So, like, non-combat damage and, like, Scarab God is a way to deal non-combat damage. Uh, as long as they're not going off and actually just taking infinite turns, like, it's probably not going to take that many upkeep ticks of Scarab God getting, like, draining for two, three, four damage. One other thing that's really interesting is that the Turbo Fog deck is uh, kind of cold to Walking Ballista. So, like, Snake, whether it exists or not, is one of the deck's worst matchups because it has no way of protecting its Planeswalkers from, like, Walking Ballista plus Snake. Just put counters on it, kill the Planeswalkers, and then the deck doesn't really work anymore. Um, so, yeah. you know, if if you can build a deck that preys on one of Turbo Fog's weaknesses in this way, like, I think there are ways to get that matchup up to, like, 75% or so. And... You know, if the deck is like ten to fifteen or or so percent of the field, like that's that doesn't hurt, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Those are mostly my thoughts about standard. I don't know if you have anything else to add. Yeah, I think that that generally covers it for me. Cool. Um, so you played modern this weekend. You played some regular affinity, but it looked like modular affinity really showed up at the Magic Online Championship. Yeah, uh, three seven O's in yeah. um from from what was posted in the mocks. That's you know, out of the what seven total seven O's, that's a pretty significant statistic. Yeah, I mean that's you know what? If everybody is focused on the scourges of uh like KCI and Vengevine and they decide that like graveyard hate is the way to go to solve these, then Maybe just do something broken with artifacts that doesn't involve the graveyard. Although, although... There's a, there's a surprising amount of needs to die in this deck. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, so like, Leyline does get this. So yeah, I guess I don't totally understand. Uh, yeah, if they've got a rest in peace in play, that's actually pretty bad for this deck. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right, yeah, the modular, you know, it, it's a modular deck, and, and in order for, for modular to work, it needs to die. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, I mean, it is a little interesting, but I think that the general idea behind this deck is that it's just so another one of those decks that's kind of existed in the background of, of, of Modern for a little bit now, and people mm -hmm. are kind of working on it and trying to tune it, um, and an, I think enough people have been, have been doing that where it's finally starting to kind of reap the rewards of... It wasn't as tuned as regular Affinity, but it was probably just inherently more powerful than regular affinity. Uh, so it, you know, just once it gets to the point where it is is just as you know tuned as regular affinity, it's going to be more powerful and might even take over as like the affinity deck. So you know, I think that uh, that's probably kind of what's happening here is that we're slowly kind of creeping into like people are figuring this out and people are figuring out you know how to play it and how to you know how to build it appropriately and you know what the sideboard cards you want are. So, you know, I think that once we get to that spot, then, you know, we can definitely see a lot more of this deck. And that might just be happening right now. Yeah. Um, this development of animation module seems to be a, a sort of recent thing. Looks like all of these lists have one main deck and a couple in the sideboard. So it, that may be an answer to, 
even to Stony Silence and things like Graveyard Hate, you know, you you can just make a bunch of servos and, and go wide off of pretty much all of your spells. Yeah, for sure. So that's, you know, that's that's a, a potential, you know, that, that's the type of card that, like, nobody puts in there in the initial iterations of the list, and then you figure out what you're losing to, and then this solves some sort of hole there, and that's that's how decks become good and become presences in modern, is, is fixing those weaknesses. Um, so yeah, I, I do think you're right, like, there's clearly development time that is going into these decks. And also, at the end of the day, this is a Mox Opal Ancient Stirrings deck, so it's just got a lot of inherent power there. Yeah, I mean, it's playing the two most powerful cards in modern, in Mox Opal and Ancient Stirrings. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, how bad can it be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only Ancient Stirrings could find hardened skills, though, then... Yeah, and we'd really be cooking with gas. Oh man, that would be too much. <laughs> it would. It would probably um, just be too yeah. much. Well, just throw some faithless lootings in there, and then you just have the three heavy hitters in modern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We also have Ventrine showing up in general. Uh, I really am excited. One of the things I was going to ask you about this episode was, what do you think about Leyline of the Void in the main deck of Ventrine and some of your flex slots? And lo and behold, Ophelia's X1 list from the Mox has four Leylines of the Void in the main deck. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I saw people trying out kind of earlier on in the week. And I thought it was interesting, and it definitely has some, like, a lot of utility. Having a graveyard in modern in general is just so important. And we kind of just talked about it in, like, the, the modular affinity deck. Is there are a lot of decks where you might assume that, you know, it doesn't care about the graveyard, but then you know, it, it kind of does. It, and it feels like that's just true for, for kind of all of the modern decks, probably except for humans. You know, if we want to go down the list, Tron has has eggs that need to hit the graveyard to, to draw a card. You know, Hollow One clearly uses, utilizes its graveyard a lot. You know, the control decks all have Snapcaster Mage and um, Search for Iskanta. Mardu Pyromancer uses its graveyard a lot. Ironworks uses its graveyard a lot. John, uh, Vengevine is, you know, completely oriented around the graveyard. It just seems like a pretty strong card in general right now. And um, because Vengevine is just in this weird spot where it's really explosive and you t- you need to mulligan to powerful hands, like, it might just be giving you, like, one more powerful thing to mulligan towards out of a main deck slot. Yeah, and the fact that you are playing Faithless Lootings and Insolent Neonates, you know, you don't have as quite as much looting as some graveyard decks to, like, ease the pain of drawing a later in the game leyline, but you still have some. And, uh, like, probably you're going to be discarding them to, like, flashback Faithless Lootings relatively regularly if the game is going on for a little while. Yeah, I just, in general, and, and you know, no, that's all... You know, we we go through all the modern decks and we see how not having a graveyard uh, affects almost everybody. And even, you know, some of the decks that it does affect, like you're certainly boarding it out against blue-white control and that sort of thing. It's not doing enough there, but it's not totally dead. But yeah, it, it is effective against a lot of modern. And then we're not even talking about the fact that it's protecting your bridges. So if they have a creature they can sacrifice or if they want to trade off in combat, then you don't have to worry about your bridges and you sort of, you know, it's a little bit of a crutch, but that's definitely kind of easy mode with regards to just getting value over the course of the game. Yeah. You know, I, so I, I kind of like like the idea of it in the main deck, but I think that the it's that slot is probably still better off as Shriekhorn 
uh, mm -hmm. which is kind of a, a tool that I'm a pretty big proponent of in the Vengevine decks that feels like nobody else has really picked up on quite yet. You know, so maybe maybe I'll just need to uh, win Baltimore with a Shriekhorn version of this deck for people to <laughs> respect it. But <laughs> um, well, I would definitely, I would, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So you know, maybe maybe the word just isn't quite out enough yet for for people to really pick up on that card being just a really another excellent uh, enabler for this deck. But I can see how there are definitely slots in this deck where you can kind of you know mess around with it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it definitely takes away from some of the explosiveness and consistency in enacting your primary game plan to put a card like Leyline of the Void in your main deck, for sure. But, you know, I real And not that this is, like, a, a huge concern or anything like that. The, the deck is part of the modern metagame now. But I really don't want to be the Vengevine guy playing against the... Playing the Mirror and my opponent has Leylines and I do not. That sounds really terrible. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. If if you're playing the mirror and your opponent leads out with a turn one ley line, it's just you know that's just that's just game. It's over. Yep, yep. Especially game one. That's yeah. You can't have been prepared for it. <laughs> right. So yeah, I mean, I I'm definitely you know I'm about to dive into modern testing. Uh, got GP Prague coming up, and then GP Stockholm after that. So I want to get pretty into modern over the next several days, and that's that's one of the questions that I think I'm gonna try to solve for myself here is what do I, you know, what kind of like, Vengevine philosophy do I like the most? Am I more of a Shriekhorn like proactively enable your broken stuff, or am I more of a leyline like hedge a little bit, uh, get weird percentage points in matchups where your opponent wouldn't necessarily expect it uh I'm, I'm looking forward to trying both of them out yeah for sure other things that we saw are uh in the modern challenge one of the x1 decks we're seeing this like lanternless lantern like super grindy uh prison style artifact deck the only colored spell in the entire deck is four words of invention and the rest <laughs> yeah. of it is all chalices and and Crucible of Worlds and Ensnaring Bridge and and Bottle Cloister and Jester's Cap. So I just Jester's I just wanted to mention cap. this this masterpiece. Yeah, <laughs> this no this deck is sweet and I think it I think that Jody Keith was kind of like one of the initial champions of of this like weird prison were bridge deck. It just has a lot of ways of locking out a lot of uh, of decks from being able to win the game. Uh, a lot of that has to do with ensnaring bridge, but it also has a lot of like other really cool tools that it can use, uh, you know, against other archetypes. Um, so, right, I, you know, I, it, there's definitely something here, and this might even be another one of those decks that people are slowly tuning and, and eventually, you know, maybe a couple months from now, maybe maybe longer, maybe less, we're gonna see this deck kind of pop up. Uh, if you know, if it turns out that a really well tuned version of this deck is really good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty sweet, and it's always fun to see kind of like weird out of left field strategies coming up. Yeah, yeah, and this is one that particularly benefits from from very careful tuning because it's running four Wars of Invention, four Teleria Wests, uh, and Inventor's Fair. Like every single slot in this deck matters a lot. So yeah. like 
you know, I don't know if this is right or not, but the fact that they're running Orbs of Warding over Witch Bane War, <laughs> you know, costs one more, but also has, has you have Hexproof, and if a creature would deal damage to you, prevent one of that damage. Um, like, clearly somebody was, like, getting hit by tokens at some point and thought, okay, I want this more than I want just Witchbane Orb. Uh, yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe for Against Storm... I, I'm not totally sure. Maybe because maybe you don't want to keep in uh, Ensnaring Bridge against Storm and Orbs of Warning protects you from the Grape Shot kill and the, the tokens. And also, since you have Hexproof, makes Gifts Ungiven awkward, uncastable. Um, I, you know, just, like these little tweaks, not that I'm saying that, you know, I haven't played with this deck at all, so I can't say what's right or what isn't. But these little tweaks are, are definitely the ones that get a deck like this to the point where it is a contender. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I do love the... And by love, that's a very sarcastic love. The (laughs) three main deck Chalice of the Void and one sideboard Chalice of the Void. Look, man, sometimes you gotta hedge. I guess. I don't know what we're (laughs) hedging here. That's... Yeah. I don't know. If I think Chalice is good enough that I want to be on a Chalice deck, like, it's, it's just crazy to me that, like, the right combination is, like, three main deck and then one more on the board for when I play Death Shadow. Like, that's... (laughs) You know, or Infect, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Or Infect, sure, um, sure. Yeah, I the last time I played against this deck, I was playing Infect, and I crushed him game one, but games two and three, I just got chaliced out of the game, and I was like, oh, yep, yeah, well, all Done. Right. We don't play Invigorate, we can't fill up our graveyard for uh, the Delve one, like, become immense. Yep, that is, that is definitely game. Yeah, pretty bad. But yeah, I mean, you know, definitely pretty sweet. Yeah, I mean, I... Would be unlikely to play a deck. I guess. See, and it's hard to call a prison deck reactive. I guess. I guess calling it reactive is is probably uh, being too, like throwing that term around too much. But yeah, a deck like this in modern, like if my opponent is just doing stuff that my prison elements don't really interact with, then that's not ideal. I mean, I guess like the Sorcerer's Spyglass gives you a lot of game against Tron if things line up. But I, I can't imagine that this deck is particularly good against Tron. Yeah, Tron traditionally beats up on these kind of, you know, these this style of deck. Just because, you know, the things that they're doing can kind of... Hard to lock down with these cards. Um, like, you can have Ensnaring Bridge out and then, like, enough Sorcerer's Spyglasses where you lock down all their Planeswalkers. But you also really need to worry about, like, Oblivion Stone. There's just kind of, like, it, it kind of attacks you from too many different angles. The Immortal Sun, I'm sure, is one of the, one of the bigger... Uh, <laughs> for yeah i suppose so because you got because yeah. you got to draw like all of your spy glasses right otherwise right right um <laughs> so and you can't run pithing needle because you're a chalice deck so <laughs> I, honestly i bet you could run pithing needle in this deck i think that would be probably fine. especially post board it yeah. probably comes in in the matchups where chalice is not as good so yeah that's probably true like it's running you know it's running maps and pirate spell bomb so true true We'll talk about this deck more if it does some more stuff, but for now, that's probably yeah. enough. Uh, enough well, about the... I, I, I want to stay on this deck just a little longer because I, okay. I'm, I'm looking now at the Goldfish page and you can see kind of like who does well with the deck and then like other iterations of the same deck. And the guy who 7 won the the modern challenge with this was, I'm going to butcher this name, Susurus underscore MTG. Literally all of the other like results from this deck are from the same guy so i think that it also kind of just goes to show how if you put a lot of time into a slightly out of left field modern deck 
you you can definitely reap some benefits from it. He this guy probably knows the ins and outs of this deck better than anybody else on the planet, and and I'm sure that he gets a lot of equity from doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. But he's probably very scary with this deck. Yeah, for sure. I would love to play against this deck in the hands of some guy, but I probably would hate to play against this deck in the hands of this guy in particular. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. For so. sure. Well, and while we're on the subject of rogue decks, or at least like like less than super popular choices... One thing that's kind of interesting is, and we said this on our last episode, and other people have also kind of said the same thing. I've seen this in a couple of articles. I know Todd Stevens wrote an article that this was the the topic of the article, which is basically that like modern's top decks are kind of pulling away from the pack at this point, and so that's you know Tron, KCI, humans. I mean, humans may just be the best deck in modern, but it's definitely one of the top five. You know, so so Tron, KCI, humans, some combination of Hollow One and Vengevine, like one or the other of those two, whichever one kind of rises to the top at the end of the day. And I guess Blue White Control. Well, we'll see how long that is. Really, one of the top decks, but they're certainly like pulling away from the pack. But then we see something. Or at least that's what we've said, and other people are saying that as well. But then we see something like the Modern Challenge, where there's, you know, it's it's modern. Look at these decks that have that went X1 or X2. We've got Dredge, Storm, that artifact deck, Ad Nauseam, uh, Eldrazi Tron, uh, Boggles, Grixis Shadow. And then, like, you know, we've only got one Humans deck at, at, at X and 2. So that's a little bit interesting. Uh, you know, this is only one tournament, and uh, not necessarily every tournament is going to do something similar to this. But I, I, I don't know. Like, are we wrong about saying there is a top tier in Modern? Or does this represent some other understanding of the format? I definitely believe that there is a top tier in Modern. But in terms of the application of that, it's... It's kind of harder to to apply that a lot when you are kind of making your own deck's choice and like sideboarding options because we we want to say you know we want to use that information of like there's a top tier in modern in order to like inform our decisions of our own deck building and like our metagame choice and everything in in the context of going to a tournament and doing well with with our choices right but it's important to know that it's it's a little it's always going to be a little more nuanced than just you know okay, now Modern's in a place where I'm only going to play against these decks. While that might be true in, like, a day two metagame of, a, of an open or a Grand Prix, in terms of, like, day one metagame breakdown, I think that that is always going to be very wide open. And while the, the, the Tier 1 decks might kind of uh, have a significantly higher representation in the day two metagame, and particularly in kind of the uh, like the top eight and top twenty five breakdowns that we see all the time. In terms of what you're actually going to play against in a tournament throughout day one, in particular, I think modern will always be very very wide open. But I do understand and and agree with the fact that uh, when it comes to like the you know the top twenty five or the top eight deck lists, and particularly the day two metagames. Uh, we really are starting to see kind of what Todd Stevens was talking about in that, you know, we're seeing the same decks over and over again, and it's pretty clear, you know, which of these decks are, you know, are clearly like the, uh, 
the archetypes that we're going to continue to see and are going to make up that kind of like upper echelons of, of modern. Yeah. And maybe the modern challenge is more of a sample size thing because it is only, it's only enough round. It's the, the same number of rounds as like day one of a GP. Exactly. So yeah. Interesting. I mean, and you know, like, I think that that's a, a really important thing to keep in mind is just like, even though, you know, a lot of times we're mostly going to be talking about, hey, what's this deck's humans matchup like? What's its Vengevine matchup like? What's its KCI matchup like? You know, there's there's all kinds of stuff in Modern still. And even if the top things are starting to separate a little bit, uh, you know, the, the like, you know, uh, one, one Modern GP that I played in, I thought I was ready for it. I, I thought that I had a good handle on the metagame. And uh, even after th this was in Lyon, looking at the top eight of the metagame, like Living End was actually like very favored against all of the top eight decks and most of the top 16 decks. But I just played against Blue-White Control, which was not that popular at the time. I played against Cheerios and I played against Storm, just a bunch of modern decks that exist and are going to be part of the metagame in small percentages and it, it can make it really difficult to feel like all right i'm confident in this choice that i've made based on the metagame that i'm expecting yeah and that you know and that make, kind of makes a lot of sense based on what i was saying earlier where while it is true that um you know in day two it you know the i think that it's getting more susceptible to be metagamed against you still have to mm -hmm. make it there and by playing yeah. a deck that's kind of like a little out of left field and um, is pretty matchup dependent. You know, you're you're gonna run against a lot of like losses in day one that could prevent you from making day two. That you know were kind of based on you know the matchup lottery that is that is day one of a modern tournament. So you know you still have to be able to 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 compete in a wider field in order to make the second day of competition for these events. But it's so it's kind of like a, a like a high risk high reward thing in terms of metagaming that hard in modern where you know if you do metagame that hard in modern then you know all of the you know the random decks that you're playing against on day one you know you might just like happen to line up really well on day one and then day two is just perfect for you uh or you could just kind of get trounced on day one by the archetypes you weren't prepared for and and just not even have a chance at, at competing in day two so um yep. that can definitely be frustrating and i think that's one of the reasons why blue-white control is seeing the the success and the heavy play that we've been seeing lately. Because if you look at the other, like, quote-unquote best decks in the format, there's a lot of, like, pretty not great matchups for it there. But if you look at just the random other decks, the, the super low percentage decks in the field, I think in general, like, white-blue control just has the tools to make it favored against a lot of the, you know, lesser represented stuff. Uh, stuff like, you know, you know, Death Shadow, I think, has a hard time with the Path to Exiles and Terminuses. And, uh, like, Collected Company has a hard time with all of those sweepers and then the counterspells. And, uh, you know, like, Pure Steel Combo, just like a key counterspell, uh, keeping the, the draw card creatures off the board. Like, these random decks, like, Blue-White tends to have the generically powerful answers that kind of shut down the ways they're trying to do something broken. And... Uh, that's probably where Blue-White is picking up a lot of its match wins, is not from the top tier of the format, but from just the random stuff that it actually is is very well set up against. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with that. Which is a little different. A lot of times, like, 
control decks are are built you know for the specific metagame that you're expecting and are pretty bad if somebody does something surprising but we're kind of you know we've reached kind of an opposite point here where their generic answers are so good that doing you know a fragile broken thing is just going to lose to the to the control deck yeah yeah and that i think we talked about this a little bit last week but it's kind of just like you know blue eye in particular just kind of fits into that well-rounded you know white answers mm-hmm. pretty much everything and blue draws you cards and counter spells so you know it's it's that like formula is going to be better in in that like wide open field a lot yeah yeah definitely so those are pretty much my general thoughts about modern i know we got a little bit philosophical there but well good <laughs> not a bad thing <laughs> yeah well yeah I, I agree i think that covers kind of what i was thinking about for modern for this weekend cool well then we're gonna move on to and instead of a patreon question of the week um i i want to talk about something that kind of happened during or, or driving back from gp brussels and one of my friends who i drove to the tournament with uh, had kind of a rough weekend he missed day two uh he played mono green and uh looking at the the results from the tournament on the way back was you know the more he was looking at them the more kind of frustrated he was getting and i think he broke this down into like like two things ultimately that were you know kind of tough for him to come to terms with so so one of the top eight players arne huschenbeth uh is a a german player who has top aided several gps this season and he got sixth place with esper control and I think that one of the things that was, you know, a little bit frustrating for my friend, uh, he was asking, like, how do they know? How, how is he picking the right deck so often? How is he so much better at doing this than I am? Because Mono Green ended up being not a great choice for this weekend, and Esper Control significantly overperformed expectations. Um, and so I think seeing, like, that, seeing this guy make the right choice a bunch of times in a row and really doing well with it. Not just making the right choice, but also going X2 and making top eight, which is really hard. Um, and, and so I think like seeing that consistent success, while like on the one hand, it's, it's nice, it shows that like you can get rewarded for making the right decisions and, and playing really well. But on the other hand, it just seems like this almost like unattainable level of consistency when you're playing a high variance game like Magic. So, so seeing that, those multiple top eights just over and over. I, I think he was a little frustrated with that. And, you know, like deck selection wise, like how, uh, I, you know, he, he was a little frustrated that decks like Sultai Midrange and, you know, Sultai Gift were making the top eight, just like these decks that he really didn't even know about. And how do you kind of cover your bases there? How do you, like, how does someone come to the conclusion that like, if I want to top eight this tournament, I should play this like Sultai mid-range deck. Uh, and I think he was just left after the tournament with just like this kind of big sense of confusion and and not sure how to approach like choosing decks from from here on out. And I guess I guess that's not really a question, but I I was I was not sure what to tell him to sort of like help him feel better and help him uh, be be more you know do the right thing in the future i wasn't sure what to what to tell him in in response to his frustration um so i don't know if you have any thoughts of you know what you might have said i yeah i mean i have a lot of thoughts and and this is going to be kind of like a multi-part answer so get ready (laughs) yes i'm ready okay so essentially there are a lot of different 
skill sets that magic players can have that give them success and uh the skill set of being able to properly identify a metagame and pick the right choice for that a particular weekend within that metagame is a is a pretty unique skill very notably amongst like the professional players uh like brad nelson is is one of the players who has that skill you know pretty down particularly Mm -hmm. for standard like he really knows how to you know kind of have a really good read on the metagame and know what's going to be really good for a particular weekend um he's like famous for being able to do that in standard um other notable players that i know who have that skill are um todd stevens is really excellent at you know figuring out a metagame he does it a lot with modern in particular zan syed my friend and teammate is also really good at you know being able to to nail a metagame every once in a while I've, I've nailed a metagame, you know, every once in a while, too. Like, my, my GP top 8, I think, definitely came off of having kind of just the best deck in the room based on what my experiences were. And I think that the common trait that all of these players have is that they all really, really have their finger on the pulse on what's happening. They're all playing a lot on Magic Online very consistently over the course of the week leading up to the event and probably the weeks prior that gives them a really good idea of kind of like understanding that metagame. It also gives mm-hmm. them the ability to have to, to you know, exercise another skill, which is really important kind of within that, which is um, understanding how particular matchups play out and how particular decks interact with each other and like what, what me- like how the matchup is favored for one or the other, the reasons for that, whether or not you can do anything in the the unfavorable match or the unfavorable deck to to kind of like shift a matchup into your favor. Just like a really fundamental understanding of how, how these formats work kind of like on a matchup by matchup basis. That's something that you're always gonna need to know to be able to figure out which of these decks is going to be the best position for a particular weekend. And so I think that's sort of like a pretty, you know, that skill is something that I get asked about a lot, particularly in my coaching sessions. Like, how do I, you know, better prepare myself for, for like understanding the metagame and knowing what to expect on a, on a, you know, even just from like a game-to-game basis, how do I know what my, deck, my opponent's going to play? And, and that's kind of the hardest thing to teach um, but it's a really important skill and kind of the only thing that you can do in order to really flex that muscle and, and exercise that, uh, your ability to like have a, have a metagame on the read is just to really keep your finger on the pulse, digest as much information as possible, read into, you know, the articles, what are people talking about? What are, what, you know, what's kind of being blasted out there that the, you know, general public is going to receive and digest and, and, you know, influence their decisions on what they're going to play. Play a lot on Magic Online. That's typically pretty informative of, you know, what's happening in kind of the Magic sphere. You're going to get used to a lot of, you know, you're going to start to see trends on like, man, I'm playing against a lot of Turbo Fog. So that probably means that people are preparing for to play Turbo Fog this weekend. You know, kind of all sorts of stuff like that. It, you know, it's yeah. really tough if you're not super, super invested to keep your finger on the pulse like that. But I'm sure that this guy who's been on a streak of, you know, top eights in in Germany is is kind of doing exactly that. I'm sure he's got his finger on the pulse. I'm sure he's playing a lot on Magic Online. I'm sure he has a very good understanding of of the matchups um, and how they play out, and you know what to do in each matchup. 
And on top of that, I'm sure he's a pretty proficient, you know, technical player. And you kind of need to kinda, like have a marriage of all of these different skills in order to have this consistent success. And that's something that, you know, I'm pursuing and everybody wants to pursue, but it it takes so much time to get to a point where you can, you know, you can have consistent success like that. Like I'm I'm not even there, you know, and I've been doing this for a while now. But it's it's definitely it's it's not something that you can kind of expect to obtain, you know, just off of like the one GP that you go to. Uh, I'm sure that this guy who's having who's having all of this success in Germany right now is kind of reaping the rewards for the effort that he's put in for I'm sure, you know, seasons, you know, playing this game. Uh, it's not just something that gets to happen, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. and you kind of have, like have to have that experience. So I hope that I hope that that kind of you know answered the question yeah i mean like basically right the answer is just it comes down to hard work i guess and you know there's certainly some amount of luck involved but you you're setting yourself up for that and so like choosing esper control for this tournament was not a result of luck it was definitely Mm -hmm. a result of of you know there's some some luck in you know you're you're making a, a a relatively hard call you are picking your position in the metagame and like putting a flag on your spot. And there's some amount of luck on hoping that that works out, hoping you were right, but you have to set yourself up to be right by, you know, being tuned into magic online by, by working with people, by making sure that your sideboard plans make sense, that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, it can be, I've, I've experienced like kind of similar feelings. You see some people just do consistently well over and over again and it's you just think like all right i'm clearly not doing the thing that they are doing to to keep having success because i'm not succeeding at that level yet and it's it's really hard to just say all right like what's the thing they're doing let me start doing that um, and it, it can be really frustrating because I, I just don't know exactly what the thing is to do. Like, what's my plan? What's my schedule here? What what am I doing that's going to then result in me, you know, picking the right deck and then playing it well throughout the tournament, every tournament that I go to? I mean, it, yeah, it just kind of like takes a lot of, you know, you're going to get it wrong so many times before you start to get it right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just something that may be hard to digest a little bit, but it's just, you know, part of the process. Yep. Yeah, and it, it definitely, I think those feelings become pretty focused on the drive home after missing day two of a, of a GP. Um, yeah, yeah. But he's asking the right questions, you know. He's asking, you know, what can I do to put myself in a position where I can also have the success? And that's mm-hmm. an excellent question to ask, um, and you kind of should always be thinking about that. But, you know, there's, it's, while, while I might be able to give some wisdom on, you know, the things that you can do in order to put yourself on that path... There's not really like a an easy button, really. <laughs> you know, you, you have to put in the work and 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 hopefully that'll pay off in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it is iterative. It's it's less, you know, like getting doing the leagues the two weeks before the tournament is really important to understanding that, you know, particular metagame going in and stuff. But the capability of saying, Alright, well, it looks like the metagame is looking like this, that makes me want to play Esper Control that decision doesn't come from those two weeks that decision comes from having done this for years and like understanding how to poke holes in a metagame that just comes from 
lots and lots of experience and lots and lots of, of failing at doing this. For sure. You know, like sometimes, like I didn't even really try this weekend. I, I could not, like, I, I don't know what, if it was just sort of lack of experience or just some amount of frustration with this standard, but I was one of the, you know, 34% of people in the tournament that just kind of gave up and said, I know I'm not breaking this metagame. So I'm just going to play black-red. I'm going to tune it, but I'm still just playing black-red. And I wonder, you know, maybe philosophically that's just... That, that's not often my approach. I, I, I don't always play the best deck. And I don't know if, you know, at, at times I've been thinking that I should lean more towards playing the best deck. And like it paid off when I started, you know, it's a little bit different in a teamer standard metagame. But when I ultimately started just playing teamer, I started doing a lot better. That, that was kind of a one-deck format. Um, when it's not a one-deck format, man, I, I don't know about playing the best deck when when it is a format where that deck is like 35% of the metagame. That might just be wrong. Um, I mean, I, I, just, I don't think that the answer is always kind of yes or no based on, like, you know, just the popularity of a particular deck. Yeah, um, fair. You know, I think it was wrong to play anything but... Um, team or energy when uh, when that was a a, a, yep. a deck, but I don't think that it was wrong to play anything but you know some other of the like the go to popular decks. Yeah, so that didn't stop us from trying to, to play to... things other than team or energy for a while when team or energy <laughs> was around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I same. You know, I I tried to play anything but that deck and was probably wrong to do so. Yeah, but definitely very interesting. Uh, picking the deck, trying to. Crack the format is is super hard, um, but and I know standard is always going to get its fair share of complaints. But right now we are in a pretty interesting standard that has sort of a rotating meta game and lots of different angles of attack. And you know, if one weekend you think that comboing with mono blue storm is the right way to go, if one weekend you think turbo fog is the right way to go, like there are different like kind of polarized deck choices right now in standard we're not like everybody's playing teferi basically or karn or something but other than that like we're not just in this mid-range standard metagame uh so i i'm, I'm kind of happy where it is like i think smart people who work hard and make good choices can definitely get an edge in this format um and i'm going to try harder to be one of them in the future yeah well good cool well then i think that's pretty much it hopefully Hopefully my friend gives us a listen, and that's at least somewhat helpful to him. Um, but I don't, I don't really have anything else to add to uh, this episode in particular, unless you got anything else. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we covered a lot of good stuff, so I'm pretty happy yeah. with it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much to everybody for listening. If you want to find us online, you can find our website, uh, mtggrindcast.com. It's also got a link to our Patreon and to Collins's coaching services. Check it out. Yes, definitely check it out. Uh, you can head over directly to our Patreon, patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. You can also find us on Twitter. I am tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast. And Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a great week. Peace. Peace.